So, um, thank you guys so much for, for leading us this morning. Um, man, we just serve a big God, don't we? And I just love that if, if God fits into a nice, tidy little box that we understand everything about him, he's not really that big of a God, right? And I'm so glad that, that the God that we serve, uh, there's a lot of mystery about him, so, but yet he still wants to be known and to be experienced um, in our daily lives. So, it's exciting to be here together to worship and to learn. Uh, thank you so much. For being here. Appreciate it. So, well, hey, this morning we are kicking off a new series that's going to be taking us uh, up until Good Friday. And uh, we don't spend probably near enough time in the Old Testament, admittedly. Um, sometimes it's easy to think that the Old Testament is a bunch of drying, old, boring, weird, awkward uh, stories. Um, and, uh, and that's just not the case, right? Yeah, there's some awkward parts, um, but yet God it happened. God wrote about it. And so we need to be studying in it. So I'm excited to kind of dig in. It's been kind of funny because for a while, a lot of my own personal study has been in the Old Testament quite a bit. And it's been very challenging, but it's also been really enriching and encouraging. <clears throat> and so, so we're going to be looking at uh, the character of David, King David. A lot of you have probably heard of him before. Uh, he's a very pivotal figure, not only in the Old Testament, um, but through a his, what God has done through him will echo through the, the rest of the Bible story as well. So, but to really understand who David is, we actually need to step back and understand what situation he came into, right? And the Old Testament is pretty interesting. And I apologize, this, this uh, looked a lot better on my computer <laughs> than it does on this TV. Um, but here's a little bit of an outline here. You can kind of see a little bit, where we have creation, and then we have Abraham, and then we have the patriarchs, Isaac, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, and then we know the story of like Jacob, uh, sorry, Joseph, um, um, uh, they, they go into uh, uh, Egypt, right? And then, um, and then they have, it, it, everything is great in Egypt for a while, uh, until all of a sudden there's a different pharaoh, and all of a sudden, that Pharaoh says, oh, all these Hebrews, um, I'm going to put them to work. And so he basically turns them into slaves, right? And there's, there's generation after generation where there is, they're stuck in slavery in Egypt. Well, then we know God calls them out of Egypt, uh, and Moses leads them out, and they kind of make a mess of it because they're impatient, and they're kind of like, well, maybe slavery in Egypt isn't as bad as wandering around in the wilderness. And so God says, oh, you like the wilderness? Well, here's 40 more years of wandering in the wilderness, right? And so then all of a sudden we have Joshua who then takes them into the promised land. And then you have this generation uh, of, of conquests where, where they're actually led by these guys and gals called judges, and the whole idea of a judge was God was their ruler. God was their, was their supreme being, right? And, and the, it was God's, they were God's people. And so God chose these, these men and women called judges that were kind of representatives of, of God's leadership. And so that's what they did for a lot of years. They came into the promised land and they, they you know, kind of overtook it and set up their identity as the nation of Israel and, uh, and things were, there was a lot of ups, there was some downs, um, but the role of the judges was to constantly point people back to God is their leader. 
Well, this guy by the name of Samuel, he is actually the last judge. And Samuel kind of comes into the scene. God calls him to be his, his, his leader, his spokesperson. And uh, Samuel actually was a very godly, victorious judge. And, and he's leading the nation greatly. And they're having a lot of victory and prosperity and everything like that. But in true human fashion, it wasn't good enough. And so they start looking around to the nations and the tribes that they were conquering, these pagan nations, and they were conquering them. But the, the Israelites are literally looking at these conquered nations. They're like, well, they have a king, and they have a king, and they have a king, and they have a king. Samuel, we want a king, right? And, and you think about, you put yourself in Samuel's shoes. Samuel was the judge. He was kind of the king figure, but only God is king, right? And so Samuel's kind of like, okay, God, like, they're, they don't like me. They don't like me, and they're insisting on, on getting a king of their own, just like all the nations that they conquered, right? And so it's kind of silly, but yet the, the nation actually rejected God's sovereignty and the victory that he gave them, and they started to rebel. And so it's interesting is God actually tells Samuel in 1 Samuel um, chapter 8, verses 7, 8, and 9, he says, God says, they're rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. This is a major shift that God finally says, fine, have it your way. And that's the story of the Old Testament over and over again. So Samuel actually warns them and says, you know what? You're going to get a king, but he's going to reign over you. He's going to draft your sons into his military to fight his wars that he wants. He's going to take away your daughters. He's going to take away your best fields, your best harvest, your best livestock, and you will become a slave to this king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 18, Samuel even says, you're going to beg for relief from this king that you're demanding. Be careful what you wish for, right? But the people kept on refusing to listening to the warnings, and they insisted that God gives them a quote-unquote real king. What's really interesting is we see this today. We put so much faith and trust in in politics, in a politician, in a party, in, in this and that. And it's kind of like, we, om- we, we like to have kings because it's someone that we think that, that we can control and can do everything for us. And instead of looking to God, we look to a human to do what only God can do. Well, Samuel goes from being the very last judge of Israel to being one of the first, if not the first, prophets. Now, the interesting thing is when God said, fine, you want a king, have a king. I'm going to give you a king, but I'm also going to give you prophets. And the prophet was there to hold the king and the nation accountable. All of a sudden, instead of being the judge, being kind of that direct person that people look to, prophets kind of were almost kind of on the outside a little bit, kind of saying, oh yeah, this is what you're doing, but this is what's going to happen. Here's some warnings, here's some challenges, right? And and, And he became the first prophet. It was really interesting, the shift that Samuel sees in his lifetime. So God chooses Saul through Samuel. He says, here's this guy. I want you to go crown him as king. Saul was a handsome, kingly man. 
right? Like he had all the external appearances. He was, he, he, he passed the vibe check, right? Like he is kind of like, that guy is a king. I would follow him. And at first, everything seemed to go well. He had a lot of victory, a lot of promise. People were like, oh, he's the best king ever, right? But the problem was, is that Saul was all about his own glory instead of God, instead of God's glory. And in, um, in 1 Samuel 13, we actually kind of see where um, Israel is facing the seemingly impossible battle. And so Saul calls Samuel, who's a prophet and a priest, to come and get the troops spiritually ready, ready for battle. And so in order to do that, it's kind of like, hey, let's sacrifice, let's cleanse ourselves so that we're prepared to go into battle, right? And so he sends out for Samuel, and Samuel, we don't know why he didn't come, but he didn't come for seven days. And Saul's kind of sitting there thinking, "Um, we got a war to fight, right? And so what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands, and he takes a sacrifice and makes the sacrifice on behalf of his nation. Well, that might not seem like a big deal, but in that time, only priests were qualified to make sacrifices. To us, you know, fortunately, we live in the new covenant, the new system, but this is still operating out of the old one, right? And so Saul took matters into his own hand. Well, he's the king. Rules don't apply to him. And so he relies on his own strength to do what he thinks needs to be done to win these battles. This is a big, big no-no. Saul didn't think that God's rules applied to him because he was king, and so he relied on himself instead of God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, Samuel tells Saul, now you done messed up. (laughs) If you know, you know. Your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. He calls Saul on his bluff. God's looking for someone who's going to follow his lead and whose heart is aligned with God's heart. Saul insisted on his own way, his own will, and his own strength, and this was not okay. Sure enough, Saul fulfills all of Samuel's warnings. It says he went through all the land and he found every strong young man and enlisted them into his army. And sure enough, they go in and... They're, they're fighting these, these battles. And in 1 Samuel 15, it looks like it's actually going well. Saul actually conquers the evil Amalekites. God orders them to destroy the entire nation of Amalekites. Now, that sounds awful, but we also kind of have to know, like, that's kind of how wars were fought back then. This wasn't unique to, to Israel. It's just kind of like, you're evil. We got to wipe you out. We got to wipe the evil from the land, Right. But Saul decides to wipe out everything except for King Agag and all the finest livestock of the nation. Now, seems somewhat harmless, but all of a sudden Samuel comes back and he goes, hey, how did uh, following God's instructions turn out? And he goes, oh yeah, did it all. We're, We're good. And Samuel goes, what's the bleeding of sheep that I hear in the distance, right? And he goes, oh, yeah, there's those sheep. Oh, well, they're the best sheep, and I was going to offer them as a sacrifice to God. You know, quick thinking, Saul, way to cover your butt, right? Like, like way to think on your feet. And so Samuel is kind of like, no, 
no, this is not okay. You cannot take trophies of your own conquests. And so he, he, uh, he confronts him. It's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 28, Saul, uh, Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. Samuel says that God doesn't want someone who claims to love, claims to follow God, but clearly is only serving himself. Saul pleads, and is like, no, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it, whatever you ask, but it's too little, too late, right? It's clear what kind of king he was, and he was, despite the first impressions of being this perfect kingly person, God says he regrets choosing Saul as the first king. Now, we might struggle with that. God regrets? You know, we could do a Hebrew word search on what that means, but I really do believe that God was kind of like, he knew what was going to happen, but he also felt regret because it's kind of like, it stinks to see my nation go through this, right? But God is sovereign, he is powerful, and he says, okay, we're going to continue with this. Okay, why do I start off with this history lesson? Why do I start off with this drama, right? Like, like, why are we focusing on this? It's way too easy to have an oversimplified and romanticized version of David. A lot of times I've heard uh, series or, or studies on the person of David, and it's kind of like, David, the perfect king. The, the predecessor, the prototype, like, like, here's who David was, and this is how you can be David, right? Like, it's almost kind of like David is this perfect caricature of the ultimate follower of, of God, right? And so then it's kind of like, here's how you measure up to who David was. Well, we just spent three weeks talking about don't try to measure up, right? Which was kind of a fun series. If you weren't here, go back and listen to it, right? But we don't want to fall into this trap that David is some squeaky clean, perfect example prototype to follow. We don't want to follow David. We want to follow God. We want to follow Jesus. David is a very complex and complicated character. And, and so we want to actually look into the highs, the lows, the pros, the cons, the good, the bad, right? And everything in between. I want to have a very vulnerable look at who David is. We're going to have a lot that we can learn positively from David because he is a man after God's own heart. But yet we want to look at how a heart that's after God reveals God through everything. Even when we see him making some awful, horrible mistakes that, that it's kind of like we read history and it's kind of like he did what? This is terrible. Yet we're going to see that God's love, God's grace can transform anybody, even the worst of sinners. And so I want to take this really real look at who David was, at at looking at what it means to have a heart that is for God. Real broken human beings. David was a real broken human being who inherited a real broken situation, right? This is the situation that he inherited as the second king of Israel. So let's do a quick dive into the first, uh, the first account that we have of David in 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. 
I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem for a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. So what's interesting is that olive oil was used to anoint people, like specifically kings, but, but other, other people as well, right? The, the, the idea of olive oil was that it was symbolic of setting people apart for God's work. It was representative of holiness and of power. If you were anointed, you were a set apart, like you were supposed to be different. You were supposed to show that God's anointing was on your life. You weren't going to be perfect, but yet you have God's holiness, his presence, and his power in your life. Now, what's interesting is that Jesse is actually the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. If you know your Old Testament history, Ruth and Boaz is actually a fascinating story of sacrificial love and service right? Like Ruth is this, uh, is this outsider who, who actually like demonstrates what real sacrificial love looks like and God works through them. And so what's fun is that, is that Ruth is actually one of the few women that is uh, described in the genealogy of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. And so Jesse's grandma is in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, another thing, where are they at? Bethlehem. If you're getting major, like, Jesus foreshadowing vibes, it's for a reason, (laughs) right? Like, we're going to see that this is where God starts to turn the story, right? And there's, there's a lot of intentionality of why God chooses David. So Samuel goes, finds Jesse... And, and is ready to anoint someone as king. Verse 2, But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hear, hears about it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which one of his sons to anoint for me. Now what's crazy is that Saul is still king. And God calls Samuel to go commit treason, to defy the nation and its king. So he's like all like cloak and dagger, right? Like, like clandestine. And, and he's kind of like, if, if the king finds out that I'm anointing another king while he's still alive, I'm going to die. And he goes, hey, here's your alibi. Just go take a heifer. Go say you're going to sacrifice it. Invite, invite Jesse. You're all good. You're covered, right? Like, I got your back, Samuel. Just do what I tell you to do. Verses four and five. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived in in Bethlehem, the leaders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Okay, if a prophet comes to your town and says, hey, Jesse, you're kind of like, I'm not Jesse, that's Jesse, you know, right? Like, like that's a little bit scary here. But he says, hey, I'm going to offer a sacrifice. Why don't you come to the sacrifice, right? And so uh, verse, verse, uh, verse five um, it says, yes, Samuel replied, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the pure and right for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. Okay, verse six. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He must have been a stud right? He was probably the closest thing that they had to Saul. And it's kind of like, if Saul, maybe he was better than Saul. Like, oh my goodness, Eliab, right? Surely this is the one that God has anointed. Verse 7, 
But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height. For, Come on, what do you got against big guys, God? Come on. <laughs> Maybe it's not that way in the original Hebrew. I should have I checked that out. So. But I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God sees. That word see in Hebrew is ra'ah. And that word means to perceive, to discern. It's kind of like, I'm not, I don't just see you, I see who you are. And that word heart, he sees the heart is labab. And labab means inner person, your mind, your soul, your will. It's actually like who we really are on the inside. All those barriers that we try to put up, all the performance, all the work, all the, all the stuff that we try to do to make ourselves better, God sees right through that into who we really are. He's not focused on the superficial, temporary, external things. I like that phrase that says, all that glitters is not gold. Just because someone might look really impressive and they have it all going on, it seems, we don't know what's really going on in their heart. Just because someone looks pathetic or ungifted or untalented or unskilled or, or like they've been passed over by everything in life doesn't mean that they really are. Because a lot of times God chooses the passed over, the fringe, the has been, the never will be, to do what he wants them to do. And we're going to see that in verse 8 through 10. Then Jesus told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, no, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemaiah. But Samuel said, neither is this one the one that the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. All seven sons were there, right? It seemed that way. And Samuel's kind of like, God didn't choose this one. God didn't choose that one. God didn't choose that one. Samuel had to be kind of doing a gut check at that moment because he says, okay, God said one of Jesse's sons. And the last one wasn't none of them, right? Samuel had to have radical faith and obedience to actually do what God told him to do, even if it meant seemingly impossible. And so finally, he says in verse 11, he says, are these all the sons that you have? Well, <laughs> they're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Any youngest children in the room? We are the way we are for a reason. Amen? <laughs> What's funny is that that word youngest means youngest, but I love Hebrew. And if you, if, I'm telling you, if you want to take your relationship with God to the next level, actually study the words that he wrote. Because that word youngest doesn't mean, doesn't just mean youngest. It's the word gatan. It means small, insignificant, unimportant. Well, we have one more, but he's so insignificant. He's out doing the servant's work, tending the sheep and the goats. Unskilled grunt labor. Someone had to do it, so I guess David would, right? Guys, don't let the significance of this pass over our heads. 
What's interesting then in verse 12, it seems to kind of throw things, and I'll be honest, I've always kind of struggled with this, but again, you kind of get into the words, and it starts to make sense. Verse 12, it says, so Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought he didn't pass the vibe check for the king, and here he's like dark and handsome and, and like glowy eyes, right? That's not a compliment. It sounds like a compliment in our world because we value those things. In that word, it's like, he's a little boyish boy. He's a little child. Like, are you kidding? He, he's not a man. He's a little twerp. He's worthless. This is coming from his own dad. And his brothers all are kind of like saying, yeah, he's worthless, right? Hope he doesn't get ran over by one of the little baby sheep, right? <laughs> He's not even worthy being considered as a mighty warrior or a, or a king. We're, it's going to be interesting. We're going to see more about this in weeks to come. But verse 13, we'll wrap up with this. So as David stood there among his brothers, can you picture that? Here's torpy little, little boyish David standing amongst all the sequoias of his brothers, the kingly ones. And the dad is watching. And here's little David. What's up, guys? What's going on? Who, the sheep, is, are they okay? Samuel walks up to little David. And he takes the flask of olive oil he had. And he brought and anointed David with that oil. He was set apart. God's presence, his authority, his power was put onto David. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully, powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. <laughs> he goes, okay, you're king. See ya. This story is so crazy. I love it. But here's the big idea of this passage. God wants a genuine heart, not good appearances. Not that good appearances are bad, but a lot of times, like we've just got done talking about in our last series, a lot of times we work so hard manicuring the external appearance because we think we need to measure up to something. And God says, I don't look at that. I have x-ray vision to see into your heart, who you actually really are, your joys, your fears, your desires, your, your everything, right? Like, like what really drives who you are? I want a genuine heart. So here's four takeaways from this story. Number one, God looks at the heart. Pretty easy, right? David wasn't great and did not become great on his own. He was a blank slate. He was a clean canvas that God could write his story that he wanted to write on David's life. David was open to God. A lot of times God chooses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Sometimes the externals actually get in the way. How many times have we seen people become victims of their own success? I've seen it time after time after time, in, especially in ministry. When people are wanting to serve God, all of a sudden things start to explode, and then all of a sudden, boom, I'm the king, right? No, 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 no. You're a shepherd. You're a servant. Like, God doesn't need you. He wants you. He chooses you. Don't forget the difference in that, right? God looks at our heart. 
he, I love how David was doing the work of a servant shepherding a flock. That's leadership, right? That's service. That's caregiving. It's not glorious. A lot of times it's messy, but he wants us to genuinely live for him. The Apostle Paul knew this too. In, in 2 Corinthians 12, um, 9 and 10, he says, when the Apostle, I love how the NIV application commentary says this, when the Apostle Paul learned that God's power is made perfect in his weakness, he decided to accept his weakness. So Christ's power could rest on him. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I love how we, we use the phrase every now and then, if dependence is the goal, then weakness is a virtue, right? If we want to become more and more dependent on God, then embrace the weakness that reveals our need for him. Don't run away from it. Don't try to compensate for it on our own. Lean into it and allow God to fill us with his presence, with his power along the way. The problem is, is our culture wants Saul's, not David's, right? Our culture expects us to be Saul when really we need to be the underdog David. Number two, if God looks at the heart, then we should too. If God creates the space to actually get to know who we really are and doesn't run away when he sees our mess ups, right? Look who Jesus hung out with prostitutes, tax collectors, traitors, sinners, low-life, uneducated, unskilled losers. You know, loser is, is a very common, oh, he's a loser, he's a loser, she's a loser. Praise God, because that's who God wants to hang out with. I hate the insult of loser, because Jesus says, oh, the law says don't commit murder. But yet I say, if you say raka, if you're dead to me, you're a loser, then you've killed him in your heart. You're just as guilty of murder as if you killed him physically. We, we need to get over that, right? Like we need to stop judging based on, ex, on externals and we need to create this space to actually get to know the people around us. Because guess what? God created them too. He entrusted them with a the heart, with the soul, with gifts. Maybe they haven't realized it. Maybe they haven't lived in it. Maybe they haven't experienced it yet. But why would we stand in the way of what God wants in and through them? It's not our job to judge. It's not our job to stand in the way of that. It's our job to shepherd, to care, to love them, to bring transformation into their lives. So God looks at the heart. If God looks at the heart, then so should we. And then third... God gives us what we need. We need to rely on God even if it seems impossible or takes time. Here's the crazy thing. 15 years from when David was anointed to his coronation as king. 15 years he knew I'm actually the real king, but Saul thinks he is. Now we're going to have this awkward dance, and we're going to be studying that for the next several weeks. Fifteen years. The Apostle Paul, between his conversion and his first missionary journey, 11 years. Where he, where he suffered, where he was... In, in anonymity, when he was learning, when he was having the old self stripped away and he was becoming new, right? 11 years between when he was converted and his first missionary journey. And then there's this guy named Jesus 
who was born into obscurity in a dirty, disgusting feed trough. And then we don't know anything about his life for the next 30 years, but because his dad was a blue-collar construction worker, we're pretty sure that Jesus spent 15 to 20-plus years as a blue-collar construction worker. That's glorious, amen? I've done that. It's not, right? (laughs) But 30 years before he stepped into the public scene with his ministry, one-tenth of his life, was spent actually in public ministry. Sometimes it takes a lot of time and a lot of takes a lot of time it takes a lot of suffering. But if God calls, he's also going to equip and empower. I love the phrase God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. It doesn't matter like, like Moses is kind of like, oh, don't chose me to lead your people out of Israel. I can't, 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 can't talk, 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 right? Like, and, and God says, doesn't matter. I'll give you the words you need to say. And, and Moses wants to hide behind his, his insecurities, right? But God gives him, equips him, and empowers him to do what he wants to do. What's crazy is that I kind of appreciate this. Because I had a speech impediment. I had to go through several years of speech therapy just so I could talk, right? I had crippling insecurity for years. I did not want to stand up in front of anybody because I was so consumed at what other people thought of me. I was always told, you're too big, you're too this, you're too that, you're too that. I was always told, you're too this, you're not enough that. And one of the most foundational things that God did when I gave my life to him was he says, yeah, that's what people think, but this is what I say about you. This is how I'm going to use the failures, the mess-ups, the sin, the, the, the pain, the suffering, the uncertainty, the insecurity. This is how I'm going to use this for what I want to do through you. Now get out of the way, Jason. <laughs> I remember when, when we uh, started ministry in, in Oklahoma. This is my first full-time gig, and it was kind of like, okay, this is for reals now. I was a youth pastor, and it was this really cool program, and I came right after this, like, this legendary figure. His name was Wendell Lowen, and he had built this ministry up, and Wendell was like a speaker at camps, and he was this, like, it was funny because Wendell actually left the church in Oklahoma to become the youth ministry professor at the college that I went to. So Wendell was my youth ministry Bible prof in college, and then all of a sudden, Fairview calls me up and says, hey, we want you to come and apply for this job. I was like, me? Are you kidding? I can't follow in his footsteps. He's the king, right? Like, he's unreal. And I'll never forget Curtis Carber, who is one of my best friends. He and his wife, Debbie, sat, sat me down, sat Nicole and I down, and he says, Jason, you're no Wendell Lowen. And I was like, oh. I know, I know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm such a disappointment and a failure, I don't want to, blah, blah, blah. he goes, but Wendell alone was no Jason Quaring. I'm like, what? He goes, Wendell had strengths, we let him run with it. He had weaknesses, and we helped cover them. You have strengths, we're going to find those. Well, I have to dig a little bit, but we're going to help you thrive in your strengths. You have weaknesses, and it's okay, we're going to help it get covered, Right? Like, that was the most empowering words I'd ever heard in ministry. 
And the same is true with us, with each and every single one of us. If God calls you, he's going to equip you and he's going to empower you. The spirit of the Lord came heavily, heavily upon David from that day forward. That same spirit is the same spirit that you and I receive when we surrender our lives to Jesus. It's the same spirit, the same power is available to us. So God looks at the heart. If God looks at the heart, then so should we. God gives us what we need. And then last, don't allow ourselves to be sidelined from what God is calling, equipping, and empowering us to do. Now, David could have been sidelined by his dad and his brothers and by his appearance and his lack of whatever, right? But God called and he came. He responded. So, how is God calling you? How is God saying, hey, I, I, I want this. I want you to trust me on this. Do this. Live this. Surrender this. Pick this up. Put this down. Start this. Quit that. Right? How is God calling you? How can we in, in view our lives, warts and all, as a blank slate for God to use? Are we willing to let him take our failures, our mistakes, our weaknesses, and say, ooh, that's, that's a palette. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring in some of that color over here. And you're gonna, you're gonna see how all that pain and uncertainty and embarrassment and, and failure and pride, and, and I'm gonna take those colors and I'm, let me paint with that. I can do something with that. I can use the things that you don't want to do great things. Just trust me. I'm a great artist. (laughs) Are we allowing God to use us as a blank slate, as a clean canvas? Are we allowing him to use the things of our lives to tell his story? Another question is, what voices are telling you that you don't have what it takes? Maybe those are current voices that you have. Maybe there's people in your life that, that, that are attacking you and just subtly gaslight you and slam you and condemn you and, and are, are telling you, maybe those, maybe those voices are now, maybe those voices have been ringing in your ears for, for 10, 20, 60 plus years. Those voices take up space. And too often we give those voices space rent-free in our brain. Can we recognize those voices And can we surrender them to God? Satan's an accuser. He's a liar. He wants us to be afraid. He wants us to hide in shame. When God says, no, true love drives out fear. He drives out shame. There is no shame with Jesus. There is grace, mercy, love, and transformation. Sometimes those voices are external. Sometimes they're internal but their voices nonetheless. Another question, how can we intentionally allow God to cultivate our hearts to pursue him? How do we train our hearts to desire him to where when we wake up and we have those voices that are bombarding and we're, we're having the self-doubt, the, the self-hate and, and all those things like that, how are we cultivating our hearts, our minds to listen to his truth instead of the lies of Satan? You're not worthy. You're not this. Well, guess what? God says differently. He chose me, so good luck defeating that. 
And then how can we encourage those around us to cultivate and develop hearts that pursue God as well? How can we be voices that encourage people to surrender to the same God that David surrendered to? How can, we, how can we develop a culture of calling? Now, what's so interesting is I know that the word calling has weird connotations in different groups, different religions. Sometimes, uh, well, God called me to do this, so I can't argue with that, right? Like, that's not what God says. Or it's kind of like, you're called to do this. And it's kind of like, oh, you want me to be doing busy work in your church, right? Like, too often it's you misused and abused. And that's not what we're talking about. This is a large calling of this is who God wants you to be, how he wants you to live. And yes, there will be sometimes very specific actions that he wants to take, but it's not a, it's not a manipulative kind of like, well, God called you to, to do this for me, right? It's not a selfish, earthly thing. It is us listening to who God wants us to be and what he wants us to do. But I love that idea. Recently, I, I heard the phrase, are we as, as churches developing a culture of calling? God is calling every single one of his believers to be his follower. For some of us, it might be, I'm going to go live differently at work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a different type of neighbor. I'm going to be at, on my team, in my club, at my school, in my classroom, at my work, at, 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 at the gym or whatever. Like, this is who God is calling me to be. And based on who I am, that's what I'm going to do, Right? For some of us, maybe God has put a more specific call on your life. Maybe God has called you to be a missionary. Maybe God has called you to be a pastor, a worship leader, a, 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 a something, right? Maybe God has put a specific calling on your life. Maybe he has. Are we running away from that or are we leading into that? Are we as a church cultivating that to where like, I, I know churches used to be much better at saying, hey, we see this young man or this young lady, and we kind of see how they're gifted, and God's kind of done that. Like, we want to help call you into that. We want to we be a part of God's empowering and, and equipping hands and feet in your life, right? Can we be that as a church family more and more and more? So to close out this week, moving from knowing to doing, from belief to action, I want to invite us to pray a prayer every day this week. This insignificant, overlooked, twerpy little kid went on to write half the Psalms. We get his diary. And some are amazing, some are gut-wrenching. But I specifically this week just was drawn to Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18. I'm just going to read it as a closing prayer. Let God speak this into our hearts, into our minds. And I pray that this week we can allow it to grow in the soil of our hearts. David says in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You, you place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. 
I can never escape from your, from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. That's my prayer for all of us this week. I pray that we know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows us. He cares about us. He sees us. We matter to him, and he wants to do what he wants to do in and through our lives. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for each one here that are here in person this morning or that are watching or listening online now or, or later on. God, I pray that these truths would, would just scream out to us, that, that the truths of, of Psalm 139 would, would be so much more loud than the voice of insecurity, doubt, self-hate, um, insecure, what, whatever it might be, God, even in our pride, God. God, I pray that we would see who you see in us, that you choose us, you empower us, you equip us. God, I pray that, that we would not run away from that identity, um, that we would humbly receive it. God, this isn't some self-help or anything like that. Instead, it's, it's surrendering to who you call us to be, who you've made us to be. God, I pray for freedom in our lives. I pray that we would be free from the sin that so easily entangles us. God, that we would start to, to ask ourselves what you have for us, what you want in us and through us. God, I pray that we would whether it be uh, in our job, no matter what it is, God, that we would see the opportunities that you have for us. God, some of us might not feel like we were the, the people that could ever do anything for you. God, that's totally not the point, God. It's not what we can do for you. It's what you want to do in and through us. Every single one of us that puts our faith in you. So God, help us to receive that. Help us to live that out. God, I thank you so much for each one, and I thank you so much for your love for all of us. God, we pray these things in your name.